Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is a very special episode because we have a guest. His name is Trent. He's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers, hosts the Council of Trent podcasts, of which I am a proud patron, and has authored the groundbreaking and bubble-popping literary masterpiece, What the Saints Never Said. Welcome to the podcast, Trent. Thank you for having me. I'm glad someone else read that book, too. Well, to be perfectly honest, I have not read it. I don't want my bubble popped, but I'm glad it exists. You're you're in good you're in good company. <laughs> I figured that for the um, very small amount of crossover listeners we have, those four people appreciated that because it's beginning to be a, a bit of a running joke on the Council of Trent podcast. Yeah, so Cy likes to rib me about it on Catholic Answers Live. Though I actually have heard, I actually have heard a fair number of people uh, have enjoyed it. Though I've, I've thought, though, the next one that will be the real book that no one will want to read is the follow-up book, What the Saints Never Did, which I would find <laughs> interesting because I'm not, I mean, hagiography is not a specialty of mine, but I am fam- familiar with it. I do get concerned, though, when people really buy into some things that are probably pious legends. Uh, but that's a book I can imagine most Catholics not wanting to read, but oh. you never know. You never know. I do like that you have written things like that, because I think it it definitely shows some intellectual honesty, saying we don't just believe the things we would like to believe, but instead we have strong criteria to to divide truth from error. Right. Um, So, yeah, so I I am plugging that book in my own way. I do have a number of your other books, but um, actually, actually, I don't. I have none of them at the moment, because as soon as I get one, I find myself giving it away. So I've bought a number of them, but they're all gone. Yeah, I figure that's the best use of a book to be given away. Yeah. It's yours and Ed Fazer's books that I just can't keep in my library. Sure. Yep. Um, now, to kind of kick it off, the key question at the heart of economics is compared to what? It's a question of opportunity cost. So you're, you're, speciali- you're specialized in defending theism, uh, Catholicism, the resurrection, and yet you also defend free markets and oppose socialism. So let me ask you, why do you think that that's a good use of your time? Because you clearly think it's quite important. Well, I think it's important to promote the dignity of human beings. I mean, for example, I I do defend, you know, the existence of God, uh, the basics of the Catholic faith, uh, which are important for us to understand why human beings have intrinsic dignity at all, right? If God did not exist, Human beings are just another part of an accidental material universe. I mean, we might have some unique properties, but at the end of the day, we, we don't have intrinsic dignity or value uh, if God does not exist. So I care a lot about human dignity. Uh, so I defend the foundations of human dignity. Uh, I defend things. I'm sorry. I uh, defend human life against things that are opposed to human dignity. So I do a lot of work in pro-life apologetics to show that abortion is very bad for human dignity. It's a direct assault on human life, and it ought to be opposed. And I also think, though, that there are other things that can be harmful to human welfare and human dignity. The, the difficulty there, though, is that people can sugarcoat them. Uh, it's very hard to sugarcoat abortion, but it's very easy to sugarcoat socialism. Uh, it's, built, it's always been built on very lofty promises that are, are never, um, that are never fulfilled, that, that are never carried out. And so that's what concerns me is like, oh, well, this is not good for human beings, even though there are many people, including many Catholics, who think, yeah, this would be good. Or conversely, they think that free markets 
overall or overwhelmingly are bad for human dignity. And I say, well, well, no, that's not true. So I, I do care a lot about that. And I think what's interesting is some people will say to me, you know, you should just focus, you know, don't, don't focus on politics or things like that. Christians should just focus on things like feeding the poor. And my reply to that is, well, yeah, but I think free markets do a really good job at that. They are not perfect, but no, pu no purely human convention is. So like, I guess when people are, are very critical of that, and they propose just things like simple charity instead. And charity is a very good thing. I kind of want to ask them, look, you, you agree that we shouldn't restrict ourselves to first century approaches to medicine in order to heal the sick. We're called to heal the sick, but we've learned a lot in 2000 years about what techniques best heal the sick. And we should use that knowledge. And the same is true for lifting people out of poverty. We should help the poor. But we shouldn't restrict ourselves to first century methods when we actually have learned a lot about how to help the poor and how to improve people's lots in life. And I think the problem is, is for a lot of people who are Catholic, they think economic questions. It's just basically, oh, well, here is our, our faith and value, our faith teaching and our value. And economics is purely about and I think this is an error that both socialists and distributists make distributists explicitly make it saying that, look, economics is just about applying our values to the world. And if we just applied Catholic values, things would be great. Well, no, economics, and this is what's really interested me about it for so long, it's a science. It, we, it's, it, there are values involved, just like there are values in medicine. But it's a science, and we're applying a science of how people make a living and how they spend the money they make from when they make a living. And if you get the science wrong, no matter what good intentions you have, it will have bad consequences. And so that's why it's hard for me when people have pie in the sky ideas or, I mean, I was engaging someone who said that literally said that the minimum wage should be like $50 an hour. Oh and I was goodness. like, you're, you don't realize you, you, you say these things that they well, great because then companies would be forced to pay people higher. People would not have to, uh, cause they, for them, it's not even about poverty. It's like, people shouldn't be uncomfortable. And I'm like, what do you think is going to happen? What you don't understand what prices are or what wages are. And then when I try to explain that I'm some kind of I'm accused of being like a neocon, uh, you know, uncaring capitalist. No, I just want to understand. And I talk about this in my book on socialism with Catherine Pakalik. We talk about Christian realism that, well, we have an ideal for the world, but we're also realists and understand law laws of physical nature and laws of human nature. And economics really plays into that. You know, I, I think that your answer might have surprised a few people that you root your interest in promoting free market principles in the dignity of mankind. I right. think some detractors would say, wait a minute, I thought you just wanted to amass a giant pile of gold coins to dive into a la Scrooge McDuck. Why, this is quite a surprise. Yeah, um, that's the other thing that if you care about capitalism or markets that you're you're greedy. When I hear all of these things, and I do address a lot of this in my book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Uh, the answer is no. Here's why. That is so interesting. First, this idea, like, you know, there are some academics, well, some Marxist academics will try to place capitalism further back in human history. But most mainstream historians will place the development of capitalism in around 14th century Venice or Italy, uh, dealing with mercantile capitalism, how by using uh, advanced principles of trade, like not just local trading, but buying things far away where they're cheap and selling them in a far another faraway place where they're expensive, and then using systems of banks to 
control the flow of money, that that's where they'll say that, hey, capitalism really originated. Well, if that's the case, let's say capitalism originated, yeah, 600 years ago. I don't think human greed originated 600 years ago. When you look at the story of human history for the past you know, 5,000 years, 6,000 years, it is one long tale of greed, of empires, of people just going and, and taking what they want and the resources that they want. I mean, then that still has continued up to the present day, but it has gotten less and less because people, it's easier if, if someone can buy something rather than steal something. If it is cheap enough, they'll buy it because they don't want the risks that are involved with stealing it or trying to conquer it. And that leads to uh, human well-being, human flourishing. It leads to peace and prosperity, the things the gospel all wants us to, to um, aim for. Uh, now, once again, to add the caveat, that doesn't mean it's perfect. I was watching a documentary last night about uh, a company in Texas uh, engaged in environmental pollution. And so, you know, how, how do capitalists and free markets engage with problems like pollution? Well, that's a, that's a, a difficult one. But I don't believe there is any other system that has gotten it right, either on that issue or on all of the other issues as well. I think that what you mentioned earlier about how it's a it's an actual practical practical solution which jives with reality. Right. It reminds me of the the quote. It's somewhere in the Bible, and don't tell me it's not Trent. I know you're the one who would tell me it's not if if, if you knew this. Um, but the compassion of the ignorant is cruelty. I believe it's from Sirach, though I've not been able to find it again. And I love that quote. If I was to ever get a tattoo, I would get a face tattoo of that just to remind others. That commonly when we have good feelings about something, when we have good intentions, if it's paired with ignorance, the result is actually cruelty. It's violence against our neighbor. Um, right. And I think that socialism is just like a case in point of this, that sure, there's good intentions. And the same with the distributists, but it, it doesn't function in this oh, world. It, it, it's so interesting. And that's the error that I see. Uh, in people who defend socialism. And when I say socialism, I am not talking about uh, government entitlement programs to help those who uh, are down on their luck or you know, are not able to support themselves. I'm not talking about, I mean, that's another straw man. I don't know any free market economist who has said point blank, uh, government should, not, should never offer entitlement programs or, or things like that. I am talking about the idea of government. People will say the community, but it really ends up being government owning the means of production, that it is the government or bureaucrats who sit on the boards of companies and who collectively decide what prices should be, what companies should manufacture and produce. That is socialism. And when, when it's practiced on a, on a large scale, and that's the thing, we've, we've got so much empirical evidence over the past hundred years of it failing. It really boggles my mind, the people who still would want to support that. But back to your point, though, about unintended consequences. That's the thing. That's why I care so much about economics. I care about human dignity. And I just find it fascinating that when you study these things, the laws of, of human nature, the laws of economics, you see the way people operate. You can have the best of intentions and then you can have a very negative unintended consequence. There is an older story and it's probably apocryphal, but it still makes the point. That in India, uh, they had a problem with uh, with cobras. Uh, you know, you got Indian cobras, venomous snakes, and we need to get rid of them. And so the government said, "All right, well, we'll pay people to bring in dead snakes. If you bring in a dead cobra, 
then we'll pay you, uh, you know, 50 rupees or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And I feel uh, I can predict where this is going. They bred cobras, didn't right. they? Trans- oh, they did? <laughs> yeah. And so then you have illegal operations springing up where people are breeding cobras. Oh, my goodness. And turning them in. And then, it, and then when the government stopped the program to stop that, everyone just released the illegal cobra. <laughs> now, that's, that's an apocryphal story. But I have seen other... Um, that has also happened, I think, with wild pigs and rats in other jurisdictions. So there's one example of it. Uh, there's so many others. Uh, one that's very interesting is I think there was a, a province in Canada that wanted to protect um, adult uh, uh, exotic dancers, strippers, you know. And so they were te- they say, like, this is degrading to women. But instead of outlawing the practice, they just said that uh, customers cannot have to be uh, at least five feet away from the dancers to not because normally you know men will like slide up dollar bills or whatever currency they have up in in canada there to the dancers so look you have to be at least five feet away and now at first you would think okay who could be possibly be against something like that now i for one would like to shut down the places entirely but people would say well who would be who could be against something like that this is protecting women from being degraded uh you know the, the men can't be sliding dollar bills and giving it to them and, and, and you want to say, yeah, that, that's a great intention. We don't want degradation. But the problem is sometimes our best of intentions have bad consequences or less great consequences. So what ended up happening is the men at these strip clubs, because they couldn't slide the dollar bills and give them directly to the women, not even just slide into their clothes, but hand it directly to them, they would take uh, Canadian heavy coins called loonies and chuck it at the women. <laughs> so now <laughs> instead of that, they're on stage, they're being pelted with heavy metal coins. Uh, which nobody expected. But the problem is people don't do. And this is the lesson I think people understand why I care about free markets and socialism. And I think it's just fascinating. And when I read literature from Catholic socialists and especially Catholic distributists and others, there's this idea. Well, if everybody just did what was virtuous and moral, we wouldn't need capitalism. And you're absolutely right. You, you, you wouldn't or you'd have a very different version of it. But people are fallen. People aren't like that. People act in their self-interest. And many times they are selfish. I would say most people, when they just are engaged in actions in the world, they're self-interested, which is good. You know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you, you have to love yourself first to, to understand how to love your neighbor. But most people will do what is primarily in their best interest. And in many cases, that can even turn into a degree of selfishness. So we just the question is, what system is best? It may not be ideal. And compared to what what you said before is great, because people will point out the flaws in in capitalism saying, you know, well, it it manages human interests very well. It's not perfect, but it manages it well. And people will say, oh, but look at all these bad things we have. And the question, as you brought up earlier, we need to ask is, you're right. There are negative things in the system. But compared to what? What would be better? You can't compare because that's the problem I find in these debates. That people, to be fair, you either need to compare, what ends up happening is people will compare realistic free markets with ideal socialism, and that is not fair. It either has to be realistic free markets and realistic socialism, or ideal free markets and ideal socialism. Because the idea is that, well, you can never just have your pie in the sky free market idea. People will stomp on that pretty quick. It was not realistic. Well, neither is socialism. So make the comparison fair.
you, you know, you bring up the, the 14th century, and um, I'm going to put it far, far before that. I think that the roots of, of both capitalism, or as that's a pejorative ter- term coined by the right. Marxists, you know, right, as I'm sure you know, um, but the free market and Marxism had a much, much earlier root. I think it's all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I mean, wouldn't we imagine that Adam and Eve would break off and find new fruits and new things and then come back to each other and say, hey, I found some of these. Here, take one of those. Well, I found a bunch of these. They had a specialization. They, they traded back and forth. They, they weren't necessarily looking for, you know, profit or gain. In fact, right. they, they were the first family. But we see this, this specialization, the trade, this um, well, we drawing see, we value see, out of creation. Right. We see it in human nature. And right. so that's why there is a fallen human nature and aspects of it that can be perverted. But there are also good things. And we talk about this in our book. And Pope Leo XIII references this, this aspect of human nature in his discussion, both of condemning socialism and in affirming uh, free market principles, while also holding people socially and morally responsible for their freedom, saying, you know, that factory owners and employers should not treat their employees like mere commodities. Your employees are not like sacks of coal or beasts of burden uh, that you need to treat them with dignity. And so what's interesting here is, look, free markets, there's nothing to prevent you from operating a business. And here's the thing that I find interesting, people who don't like socialism, distributism, or sorry, people who do favor communism, socialism, distributism, things like that. you're under the free markets, you're free to run your business under those principles. That's what's great. You're free to do that. But under socialism or or the other uh, systems, you're not free to run your business how you would want. And that can lead to the negative consequences. So if this is so great, show us, set up companies in this way, uh, set up entire countries that are run under these principles, go and do it and show us that it works. And then some people will co- complain like, oh, you can't have islands of socialism survive in hostile oceans of capitalism. Well, you can have the reverse. Like you have places like Hong Kong or Taiwan or other places that uh, are, are thri- were thriving centers of free markets amid other s- significantly less free economies and actually did better uh, as a result. So for me, you know, you're, you're free to, to operate these principles and some of them are good. There's not necessarily anything intrinsically wrong with them. Like I'll give you an example. Most people won't want to push social classical socialism today, but they'll push that companies should be worker owned. And I would say, Hey, that's great. If you want to do it, do it, but it should be voluntary because that's not going to work for every single company. And it's also, you know, it, it, so there are, I've read stories about, you know, small bakeries and small companies that have 10 employees and they're, they're all equal owners, equally share the profits. And the company never gets beyond more than 10 people because it's hard to get 10 people to agree on anything. And so it becomes inefficient and it can't move forward. And so, you know, there, as you said earlier, economics is always, it's always about trade-offs. And that's what I think people don't understand is, yeah, you can do something that you think will help human welfare and maybe it will in the short run, but there may be an even worse trade-off and you have to consider that as well. And I, I, this is a pet peeve of mine when people, and it's the distributors also, they might be more guilty of it, is this push for the worker cooperatives. And it's like, okay, so you're only imagining profitable businesses. Would they also share in the losses? Furthermore, you, you can imagine we could take them on a step-by-step. What they're saying is that they should receive wages Plus, they should receive some amount of ownership stake. That's that's tantamount to saying 
everybody should be paid in a combination of wages plus stock. But hang on. Do you really think that it would be right to force people into working and thereby buying company stock? Wouldn't it be better to have them be able to purchase any stock they wanted and not just force them to buy that one? And if you say yes to that, then wouldn't it be good to let them sell and buy the stock whenever they would want? Because that's not possible if we force them into ownership and have them accept the loss. And then to who knows what point they can't just jump out whenever they want. And finally, why not let them just take the cash, right? Wouldn't that be the final form? And welcome back to the free market. Exactly. And so it ends up being that when you try to restrict people's liberties for their well-being in many of these situations, you end up making them worse off as a result. So that's interesting, the point you raise about worker ownership and the stock options. And many companies do offer these things. Not many don't, but many do offer them and people choose to take advantage of them or not based on their particular situation. And tax but, reasons is, is a very, you know, once you get to a certain level in the uh, in income, the marginal tax rate is huge, but the capital gains tax rate is much smaller. So I'd say that's a, a main driver for stock yeah. options in addition to aligning you know, incentives. But you're right that people don't look at the entire field to understand it, because I think, you know, a lot of these critics of the free market will say it's wrong that capitalists can just sit back and make money on profits without working. And they think they have this. And once again, it's a first century mindset to money. The, the only way you should be able to accrue money is you exercise labor, like you physically work. And really, sometimes I, I feel like even with their, your hands and your feet, uh, and then you get uh, money in response. And they'll say they don't like it that capitalists control the, the the wage aspect and they just get to sit back and make, and make profits as if they like were illicitly got in there to um to have the mechanisms to do that and maybe some business owners did illicitly acquire firms or or capital or things like that but many others what they did they worked they they traded labor for capital and instead of spending the capital they invested the capital maybe they bought a truck to do deliveries or, or work, or they invested in one small building to be able to run a restaurant. And in doing that, in trading labor for capital and saving and investing the capital, they've built up the framework. And more importantly, they took risks. They took risks. It takes a lot of risk to, oh, like imagine I opened my restaurant and I've saved for five, 10 years, and now I have my restaurant and I've opened it. And restaurants operate at a very slim profit margin, anywhere between like two to 5%. It's, it's, it was a highly risky endeavor within like the first five years, I think a third or a half of them go out of business and I opened my restaurant, I started and now I hire, uh, you know, I've got, I hire another person to come work with me to, to make it work. It's a very small operation. Now, suddenly he says, great, I want half the profits. What? Why does this person, what, why does this person have the right to half the profits just because they work here? They are receiving the benefit, but they have not put in any of the risk. That's why in a lot of these equal co-ops to receive profit sharing and things like that, you have to put in a significant amount of money into the company to to do that. So I don't like it. You're right that, oh, they're allowed to share in uh, the uh, the profits that come in. But then if there's a loss, maybe their wages have to go up higher to shield them from the loss. The, the What free markets teach us is that uh, when you increase the risk ratio, the reward ratio can be much higher, but it should be within people's personal decision to decide how much risk they are willing to entertain. I, I like to point out that capital 
could be defined as simply old labor, right? Because if you have that factory, well, that indeed you could say, yeah, sure, that was the result of labor, but it was result of laborers in the past and full of machines, which were laborers in the more distant past. And you could trace that back. So if you insist on saying that there can only be a return to labor, I'll say, fine, I can accept that. But there has to be a return to both present labor and past labor, because that past labor, um, it, it was going into um, producing value in the future, whereas right. laborers today look to get their return um, in the present. Well, so what's the once you make that kind of definition, I somebody can oppose capital but, at all. And here's what's interesting to me, that a lot of the capital, and when I read critics, I was reading some distributist critics uh, of me and, and, and my book. Oh, distributists. Uh, yeah, we could talk about that. What's hard for me is I feel like sometimes, I don't I feel like they, they hate capitalism more than socialism. I think they actually, some of them secretly like socialism because their system is not that far off from it. And so I was reading a criticism and I made the valid point that if you're saying, oh, distributists will say, yeah, that's great. Someone saved up for their factory or their their business truck or whatever. But if people all have all the factory machines and the, the regular man doesn't have a single machine to make shoes, we have to distribute that capital as far as possible. I'm like, well, yeah, I think everybody should have the tools to make themselves become economically self-sufficient. I, I think that's if we can with specialization, there, I think there's many opportunities for people to acquire specific kinds of skills that many people want, but few people have because we live in such a wide and diverse marketplace. There are so many different kinds of needs that people have. So I think that's great. But I pointed out in the criticism that there's a lot of capital, though, that isn't it's not like a it's not like the 19th century. A lot of capital is not like a machine in a factory. And if you just had that machine, you would be set like for someone like me or many others like me, my capital is a camera, a microphone, and an internet connection, you know, but it's much more than that. It's also the, the resources in my head that I've compiled, or even there are distributist authors that people will pay thousands of dollars to hear their lectures. Uh, and those distributist authors, their capital is not the microphone. It's everything in their head from personal in, in investment in themselves to become these academic experts and to develop skills in speaking and things like that. And I said that you can't, take what's in my head and give it to someone else. So now they've got capital too. a lot of capital now is it's intellectual. The word capital even comes from the Latin caputs for, which means head that <laughs> it's, it, it's a lot of capital is intellectual capital. You can't divide it. And so I read this. And so I was reading this distributist critic and he brought up my point and I thought, Oh, I wonder what he, how he's going to reply to that. And he said, and I think this just underscores the point that we as a society need to turn away from these faulty intellectual goods and pursue real goods uh, from the earth that were meant to satisfy us or something like that. that, that basically they just feel like what we should go back to is the Shire or 16th century peasant life. Like that's what a lot of them have glorified. And what I point out, I pointed out in a previous debate with the distributist that people fled to cities with awful working conditions and slums because life in those peasant villages was absolutely the worst. Most of the time it was disease, starvation, uh, bandits, uh, warlords. People got sick of it. And they were willing to put up with really bad conditions in urban centers for a marginal improvement that's gotten way better over time. And I'd, I'd say that the kind of work that we get to do now 
Um, it, it, it's awesome. It's amazing. I mean, it, we all know people who, who you say, oh, he's a bit of a nerd. I bet you he'd be good with computers. Well, there was a time when, well, that's not an option. I hope he's good with, with hoeing potatoes because that's his one job prospect. Right. But today, all of us being made unique by God can find unique ways in a large free market to serve our neighbor. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing, which is squashed by distributism. Right. And, and that's uh, and so it's important for people who are listening and may not uh, know the background of that. But distributists will say, no, 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 I'm not saying that government owns everything. Uh, I'm just but we don't also don't want the capitalists owning everything. We want individuals. And I've the hard part is when I engage and I, and I try to keep a really open mind, uh, I'll engage socialists or distributists and I'll ask them, tell me how your system works. Like I, I need a model. Like, how does it actually work? And I can never get anything except criticisms of capitalism that they don't offer their own system. Like I was in a roundtable, I think a year ago on capitalism, socialism and distributism. And the distributist was Thomas Hackett. And he basically all he said was, we'll be so much better off without usurious banks, without stocks. Uh, it seems like that he would want everyone to have their own business, essentially. And then I asked him, I said, well, OK. How are these businesses going to be funded? So the startup costs of buying materials and getting off the ground, how will that work if you don't have stock markets to, um, to attract investors and you don't have banks from which you can take out a business loan? And he said, well, well, we will decide what businesses will be funded. I'm like, oh, so the government, so the government will fund the businesses it thinks are the most worthwhile. And that's a problem that we're having now. There are jurisdictions where if you want to become a certain kind of social worker that works with certain disabled children, you can't unless the, the, the government, the state health boards give you a license. But in order to get a license, you have to demonstrate to them that there is a need for your service. And if the state government doesn't think there is a need, they won't give you a license and you can't legally help those people. Even if there are disabled kids who want your help and parents call you and say, I'm willing to pay you to come and work with my child. You have to say, no, I'm not legally allowed to because the government says there isn't enough of a need. But that's ridiculous. The market shows whether there is a need for something. Your, exactly. business, either, your business will survive or it will fail. And that's why I actually I love watching Shark Tank. That when you watch Shark Tank, you can see, oh, this person's discovered a genuine need in the market. And others, it's like there is no need for this stupid thing that you're selling. It's a novelty, it's so, a chocolate, uh, are, but there's no need for it. And, it. and it will probably fail. And that's the way it should be, because, again, the I mean, if you really want to get cheeky, you say, well, guys, universal destination of goods. Do you want firms which destroy value? If it destroys value, it destroys value for for society in, in total. Correct. Therefore, we need to have profitable firms because that shows that we're increasing the total amount of value in society. Right. And we're, we're solving the problem of distribution, of helping people to understand how to allocate the scarce goods and, and services that we have. I'll still say the caveat again, because everyone's like, oh, Trent's a utopian who thinks capitalism <laughs> is the great thing ever. No, I, I mean, I definitely agree there, there are abuses, though what's interesting is in history, many of the abuses occur when you uh, just detract from capitalism, you know, free markets, basic principles like freedom. Uh, and so, yeah, if workers are truly not free to be able to go and pursue other work when they feel that a company is exploitative, like if a company is able to use violence 
uh, and enlist mobs against workers and things like that. Well, sure, I, I, I condemn that. But just as I would condemn socialists using gulags to keep their system in check. But the problem is socialism requires totalitarian control. It can't be based on freedom because it tries to control every little aspect of the economy. And it's because like under, if you think about it now, we have black markets for things you're not allowed to buy and sell, like for drugs or certain kinds of weapons. And we need police forces to prevent those markets from existing side by side with uh, official markets. But under socialism, everything is under a black market. So you need a giant police state apparatus to prevent people. And they have that in Cuba to prevent, and, you know, in Soviet Union, other places to Venezuela, to prevent people from illegally selling their own products, their own chickens, their own eggs that are much more affordable because the government wants you to use their ration books and things like that. So, yeah, when it comes to capitalism, obviously things like like slavery, uh, other conditions where people are not free to, to leave employment or are not free to start their own business, where you have crooked governments. And people say, look at these crooked companies that are exploiting workers. Yeah, but what happens is if a worker wants to try to start a, a competing company, the government will, you know, sorry, the, the, in a, this crooked country, that bad company will just go and burn down their business. And either the government will turn a blind eye or will do it for them because they're in cahoots together. So a lot of the times when people make these, criticisms i'll borrow a line from the socialists that's not true socialism well that's not a tr <laughs> that's not a true free market and i should be allowed to use that defense as well against m these cases that arise to try to show the whole system is bad and, and you know i think that the free market reflects the actual order order of the created order that god established and if you noticed in genesis when god finished creation he called it very good perfect no, sorry, Leibniz, this is not the perfect of, uh, world. Instead, he called it very good. So when we're looking at these utopian or no place um, right. solutions, it's a fundamental rejection of the very good world that God actually gave us and a rejection of the order that he established, yeah. which does indeed create enormous amounts of value. Instead, we're grasping at something which is supposed to elevate us up to this godlike yeah. status of, of no but, scarcity and, and, and perfect everything. And let me bring in another topic that's related to this, that I care a lot about human dignity. I want to help people. But I see in many of these cases where people lose their individual liberties and it's up to government to decide what is best. I used to work for the government. It was inefficient. It was uh, we, we joked that basically we could get away with what we wanted because we had no competition. Uh, we could show up late to things. It, it, it didn't really matter. So allowing people to have that freedom, it makes things better overall. Think, for example, public education or government education. I, it's amazing to me where, where I live. I think half of my property taxes go towards public schools. Half. And I pay high property taxes in Texas. Half of them go to schools. And people say, well, don't you want kids to be educated? Well, yeah, but that money that just keeps getting poured into schools not showing benefits over time, and in some cases, things getting worse. Why not give that money to every household that has children to say, here's your your money from the government for you to spend on education. You can spend it wherever you want. And instead of having just like a few schools in every area, maybe we should just have schools that only have 30 or 40 students that are, are startups. Uh, and are some of them going to be bad? Sure, just like some restaurants are bad. But some of them are going to be great. And on average, they're going to be better. Like when I read these horror stories, I read a story the other day in Baltimore. They just did the, uh, you know, the school-wide testing. And only 0.2% of the students were reading at their high school grade level. The wow. majority were reading at an elementary grade level or kindergarten. 
And I think one of the school district people said, well, it's not fair. They, ha they haven't had instruction since, uh, you know, they were some of them haven't had instruction since the seventh grade, which they would now be freshmen in high school. OK, well, they should at least be reading at a junior high level then. If that's the case, they shouldn't be reading at a kindergarten level. But that's the thing. And you're trapped, though, that imagine that's the thing. I, I'm a big fan of school choice. Like, imagine that people say, well, we can't we can't trust something like educating children to the market. We can't trust something that that valuable to the market. Oh, well, what about food? That's that was the <laughs> point I'm going to bring up. Food is yeah. more important than education. Like if you had to pick, which would you rather have closed public schools or grocery stores? You'd pick schools. And that's what we had, right? When schools were closed during the pandemic, you could still go to the grocery store. So imagine if you lived in your neighborhood and the government told you, this is the grocery store you shop at and you go there and it's free but you're only allowed to get the items we tell you you're allowed to get. And it, this is the only store you can shop at. And if you try to shop at a different store, you'll be arrested. That would be a totalitarian nightmare, but that is exactly how it works with schools. That if you try to, if you try to, they, they'll send officers that if you say your kid lives with his grandmother and his grandmother lives in a good school district, They'll go to the grandmother's house and and snoop around like the Gestapo to see if your kid they'll look through. Oh, does he really live here? Is this really his bedroom? Have they really been writing in their journal to see if they actually live here? It's crazy that they they'll do that. And you can face legal consequences if you're trying to get your kid in a district where where he doesn't live. But we but we, we see, hey, guess what? When we allow private entities to control food distribution, we're all able to go get food and, and we get it better. Like when we were talking about the past, like to me, when people glorify and romanticize the past. Now, I do think the modern age has a lot of bad things that the past has an advantage on us. on. I think social media overall is not good. And the quiet of the past is probably better than that. But at the same time, I do feel like a capitalist who lived in even up to the 19th century. But if you pick a rich person from the Middle Ages, even a king from the Middle Ages, and you took him here today. Uh, and one, well, if you asked him to trade places with an average or even a poor person, a poor person, I really think most of them, unless they're total narcissists, would choose to be poor today. And and what they and what they would be marveled by if you took someone from Jesus's time in Middle Ages or even the 19th century and you took them here to the modern world, the things they would be amazed by. Uh, or I've heard this this description of it before that if they spent the day with Bill Gates, richest man in the world, the things they would be amazed by are the things you and I also have that Bill Gates also has. He may be really wealthy, but they may be amazed by access to reliable medicine, access to reliable water and power, uh, being able to go to a grocery store and have almost any kind of food you want in any sort of season, instant telecommunication with anyone on the world, instant knowledge acquisition, so things that are available to even the poorest of the poor that are able to, to acquire these things. That's what they would be, they would be impressed by. You know, Trent, I am so behind what you said. It's ridiculous. So much so that I'm actually um, starting up a bit of an initiative. It's called the Education Liberty Project. And I've been getting in touch with a lot of the um, uh, state delegates um, in my home state of Virginia, pushing for pretty much exactly what you just said. And that's moving education dollars from funding schools to funding kids who go to the school in the form of education savings accounts. Um, so I, I've been building out that out that site, um, That's answering awesome. objective. To, so I am a hundred percent behind that. In my but here's, state, yeah. But here's the thing I want to say about the 
some liberal Catholics, it's interesting to me that they'll chide more conservative Catholics. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the poor or their dignity. But then when I say, let's give poor people government money, let's give them this money, they'll say, oh, you're a terrible person. You're taking away money from schools. It's like, well, wait, <laughs> I thought you said that I was a bad person because I don't want to give money to the poor. And then when I want to give money to the poor, you're mad because it doesn't go to, to bureaucrats so they can hire another equity officer in a mm -hmm. public school. Because uh, they don't understand that if you give money, you know, if government gives money to some people, it has to choose to not give it to others. And the question is, who will that be? And so why not take it from that, which is less productive and the metrics show is not working and try something new? I always just ask, do you think it's fair that rich people can afford to send their kids to private schools? Right. When everybody else has to j just send them to a normal public school, well, no, that that's you're right. That that's an advantage. Oh, you think that's an advantage to go to private school? What if I told you that for the twelve thousand five hundred dollars per kid per year that we spend in Virginia, we could fund almost any private school in the state? Do you think that would be an advantage for everybody? Yeah, and that what what amazes me. The other thing that just really grinds my gears is the people that will publicly advocate, like we need to save our schools, save our public schools, and they're so important. the The politicians who do this, ninety nine percent of the time, they send their kids to private school, right. and it's just apt. Like, not you could just there's like whole videos documenting it online. Like, um, oh gosh, what was it that? I think it was Matt Damon, Matt Damon from World Team America. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure yeah, it was Matt Damon. His my mom's a teacher and we need to support schools. And he he was ripping. Uh, uh, I think it was like some reason TV correspondent or someone who was asking him, well, what about free markets? You know, if you're a bad actor, you don't get guaranteed employment. You know, you, you may not get hired for a movie. He said, well, what if you're a bad cameraman and you do you, you apply this MBA thinking to kids and it doesn't work and people are all cheering. But I'm like, no, you're right. If you're a bad cameraman, you should be fired. If you're a bad actor, you don't get hired for the next movie. And if you're a bad teacher, you go. And if you're a bad school, you get closed down. But this idea and then people ask him follow up. Well, you believe in your mom as a public school teacher. Why don't you send your kids to public schools? And he said, well, it's really hard, but the public school just didn't have the diversity that this private school had. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, give me a break. It's because it's, it's educationally worse. And you, that's what gets me mad about some of those on the left who, um, and, I, and I agree with some of their principles and even some proposals they might offer. I don't want to be an ideologue. I'm not saying if you're a liberal or you're left, you're like bad or you're the villain. But some of them, there's this subset who, claim to advocate for the poor but then they and maybe they don't entirely they intentionally do this they advocate for the poor then they advocate for programs that end up hurting the poor but they have enough money to escape the negative effects of the proposals that they offer and so that is just you know what what's hard for me to deal with so trent we've been agreeing far too much so so let me put <laughs> my my socialist hat on it's pink sure. it's inappropriately shaped and it's been featured in a variety of marches um it's also imaginary i wouldn't own such a hat um, so I have a couple of objections that I could launch, but I'll let you, I'll let you choose. Sure. We can do level one, level two, or level 11, also known as try to stump Trent Horn. Which oh. would you like? I don't know. This is still, I mean, I've read a lot in this, but it's more of a hobby than a full-time thing, but all right, let's, um, let's start at level one and then, then maybe we'll jump to 11. Okay. All right. Level one, level one. 
Um, so, so you mentioned earlier, all right, loading. I, I mostly have the level eleven. I figured you would choose that, but I okay. Have let's go. To, let's go to level eleven. No, no, no. I, oh, okay. I, I'm, all right. Come on, come on. I, I, I got level, who, who level eleven. Are we level kidding? 11. This is one of the few Catholic apologists who does debates on the regular. I, I have true. much faith. All right, let's. All right, here's my objection. Level eleven. <clears throat> sure, Trent. You say that you know it's a it's a straw man that socialism is is just redistributing things or providing government uh, services and whatnot. And you've correctly said that socialism is the state-owned means of production. You've also said that the church opposes socialism. But hang on, there's a huge contradiction here. Aren't you aware that the so-called golden age of the church existed during a time of feudalism? And let me tell you, in feudalism, the king and the noble own all of the means of production and guild systems are only by governmental fiat, meaning that they also organize all the labor. You think that socialism takes the means of production out of the hands of people. I would say that they do in fact have an equity stake in the commonwealth, whereas in the feudal system, which the church has supported, never condemned, and indeed crowned kings over the serfs are tied to the land and through obligation must give the fruits of their labor to the king. So how can you say that the church rejects socialism on this grounds and yet it doesn't reject feudalism? Right. And I would say here that the objection first is based on a faulty view of saying what the golden age of the church is. Like I can make a much better argument. The golden age of the church was the apostolic age when Christians, even in the midst of persecution, uh, that their their the, the tree of the church is is watered by the blood of the martyrs. That that to me, that the apostolic age would really be a golden age of the Christian witness. Uh, that it's true that in the Middle Ages there are some positive things: uh, uh, Christian art, uh, Christianity being the the worldwide religion in the West. But there are also serious negative things, including negative um, economic and social policies. And also, I would say that this objection uh, doesn't take into account that Catholic social teaching develops as society develops. So we can't say that, uh, oh, well, comparing the church and how it operated socially in the Middle Ages in feudalism and serfdom versus today— well, free markets would still take hundreds of years or really six or 700 more years to develop and then for the church to respond. The same with socialism, that modern ideas of socialism didn't emerge until the 1820s. So in the Middle Ages, you basically have only one economic system that had been thought of. And so that is the given. It doesn't follow that it is the best just because that was the given at that time and there were no other alternatives. And you can criticize that that given system and ask, well, would that be preferable to what we have today? Uh, well, look at its negatives and downsides, like the guild system, for example, that people say, well, if we just had guilds and that would ensure that, you know, there's there's equity stake here and that every craftsman is able to make a good living. Well, guilds were only able to do that because a guild is basically a hybrid between a union and a cartel uh, that guilds often used violence to uh, to keep people out of the marketplace in order to make uh, the price of goods very high. And in doing that, so it led to increased poverty for people who couldn't get into a guild, and it made things difficult for people in inflating the price of goods uh, in services. But now we've seen that when you allow 
free market competition, it allows more ability for people to enter into the market to start their own businesses. And, and this is another point I, I think I was hoping we could discuss more. Now, some people think, oh, to help the poor, you got to just give them money. Give the poor money. Well, no, one way to help the poor is by driving down the cost of goods and services. So like people say, so people will say like, well, if you really cared about the poor trend, you would vote for this Democratic politician or blah, blah, blah. Because Why? Well, because they want to give the poor money. Yeah, but look what's happening, though. If their policies make things get more expensive and cause inflation, they're hurting the poor. Rich people don't care if beef goes up 20 or 30 percent. They can take that hit. But poor people can't take that hit. And so for me, using policies that can increase the ability of people to work and start businesses and drive down the cost of goods and services, that helps people overall. So, But when you look at the, the feudalism, uh, my goodness, that, that you, the, the lack of human dignity in treating, you were barely better than a slave. Yeah, you, you couldn't be bought or sold, but your land could be bought and sold and you were tied to it. And you had no real ability to improve your lot in life. And that's so different from, from what we have today with just even the freedom to move that if you're in a, a town and the, the industry is dying and it's not doing well, you can physically move somewhere else or in some cases go online to engage in other business. You have the freedom to take a risk and try somewhere else to improve your lot in life. We should not go back to a medieval time when in that given economic system, that was the best they could do. And the consequences weren't that great. See, eleven was nothing for you. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned the you mentioned the the guild. There's a famous story about um, a steamboat being invented in Germany, and as it was sailing up the river, it was viewed as such a threat to the guilds that the guilds came out and they destroyed it. Um, right. So yeah, guilds are not a golden age. Sorry, distributism. Um, and then yeah, I mean, two things that jumped to mind, and I've talked about extensively on the. Uh, on this oh, podcast. that that also that okay. also happened with the first uh, electric car that was oh invented goodness. in like the early 18th century. Uh, uh, guildsmen and other workers they came out and or it was yeah, it was the first electric steam pump something like that. They came out and destroyed it because they thought it would it, they're ticker jobs. They took my job, but that's not <laughs> true. People back in the 90s, people said that uh, ATMs. Uh, oh, you know, in the 80s and the 90s when ATMs came out. They say, oh, bankers, there won't be bankers anymore. We're going to all lose our jobs. And that's not what happened. The growth of jobs for tellers actually increased over right. time because now they're freed up to do other things that require more of a human interaction than just using uh, than just doing a transaction at an ATM. That automation, this idea, this fear that like we're all going to be slaves of robots and not be able to work it actually hasn't borne out over time in automation. You know, you mentioned the early electric cars. I, I always um, say that if you ever feel like your wife isn't being supportive, um, just remember, Henry Ford's wife drove an electric car. Right. <laughs> which I find hilarious. But Because, yeah, back in, back in that time period, yeah, gas-operated vehicles, because you didn't have electric starters, they, like, had that puff of cloud and, like, they were mm -hmm. noisy. And they were that, it was actually poorer people who would use those because they were dirty and smelly. And they kept the electric cars for the rich people until it switched. Back in, I think it's 1900, it might have been 1920, there was a fleet of something like 300 electric taxis um, going through New York City. Uh, people think that they're, they're so new. No, that, that was actually kind of the beginning. There's always been the electric car in the history of, uh, of uh, automobiles. Um, but yeah, I, I think that what you said about driving down costs, that's the thing on the other side of the equation. I mean, who cares about what your wages are if you can't afford things? We've talked a lot about... Um,
housing on this podcast. Um, you know, I, I flip houses. I, I'm a landlord. I do things like that. So I'm very familiar with the ways in which government regulation drive up the cost of housing. One of my favorite things is it's actually illegal in my state to build a house which is smaller than 600, I think it's 650 square feet. And what I love about this is that if I went and built these and I continued to do so, there can be criminal penalties where they throw me in. Trent, I can guarantee you one thing. It's not going to be a greater than 600 square foot uh, jail cell. Um, the Cato Institute has um, done some research which shows that the total cost of uh, building and zoning regulation hurt the economy so much that we lose $1 trillion worth of um, would-be growth um, yeah. as, as a result. And to put that in perspective, um, the combined economic output of North Carolina and Virginia is um, close to that of Saudi Arabia and somewhere around 500 billion. So we could tell everybody in those two states, you never have to work ever again because we made a change to building and zoning policy. And yeah. don't worry, we've offset the loss and that's, of all and that's of your productive like activity. Housing. It, it's just so interesting. Uh, I remember reading about a, a socialist politician, I think in Brooklyn, who said that her ideal solution to housing would just be to say everybody is taxed one third of their income goes to a housing fund. And then uh, so you're taxed based on your income. So if you're you're homeless, you're not taxed. Uh, but if you make a million dollars a year, you have to pay three hundred thousand dollars just into the housing fund. And then everybody is allocated. Uh, a house based on their based on their needs and of course that system is going to collapse immediately from the people who have the government yeah the people who have government connections will get all the good houses in malibu and then everyone else is going to be stuck in, in awfulness and what's crazy is that if you are diligent and buy a modest home and pay it down uh, well if you buy a modest home uh save up down payment get a modest home your housing should be far less than a third of your income. And then eventually you Certainly. can make it almost none of your income. If you're not counting the property taxes, just the mortgage, you can eventually, if you were diligent on a modest home in 15 years, suddenly housing is now, at least for the, the, the rent or mortgage, is none of your income. But it's just ridiculous that how, how is this system going to work? It would be better, like if you get uh, free housing if you're homeless and you get you know money for food stamps or things like that, how many people are going to choose like, wait, I could make, uh, you know, $30,000 a year and 10 grand of it goes to the housing allowance and I have to pay all these other taxes and all these other things. Or if I don't work, I get a free house and I get it, you know, all these other subsidies. People, I think when people will go down that line of taking government subsidies instead of working, I don't think in many of those cases they're lazy. Uh, they're just not stupid. They're just like, oh, well, this doesn't really make makes sense for me to to do that. So that's hard with a lot of government policies. It creates what we would call perverse incentives for people. Now, I do think a lot of people do become lazy when it comes to work. And also people say, oh, look, here's capitalist trend, blaming people for not working hard enough. And I do agree. There are people <laughs> in difficult circumstances who work really, really hard and they're stuck in difficult circumstances. But I'm in favor of opening up as many options to them as possible to help them to get out of those situations and circumstances. Also, I'm really caring now about keeping people from getting into those circumstances. Like one thing I absolutely cannot stand 
is pressuring kids to take out a hundred grand, 150 grand in oh, student goodness, loans yeah. to get a degree that is worthless. And I think that policy drives a lot of people into poverty uh, when they're still young and, and they're impressionable. I'm telling my boys, I want them to become plumbers and electricians. I don't like I got very lucky with my degree set to have a, a career that's fulfilling. Many other people don't. So, I mean, that's what I can't stand that, that those kinds of, you know, it's like, oh, but college is great. Well, maybe. Although, honestly, you can learn a lot of it just by attending online lectures on YouTube. Rather, it's, it's just it, Brian Kaplan has a great book on this, The Case Against Education, talking about how college is a signaling device. We go there to get a degree to show workers we're conformists. And rather, it would why not just send people out and allow them other uh, cheaper ways to develop reliable workplace skills and help them grow uh, in that way? So that's another thing that I care about. Yeah, I, I just remind people that we wouldn't trust a, a politician to order us lunch. Like, would you really want your government to choose what you're going to have for lunch? Well, they don't know me. Maybe I have a food allergy. How much would they spend? Like, of course, they wouldn't be able to do that. You'd want to spend your money on something that you would like. So if we wouldn't trust them ordering us a sandwich, why on earth would we trust them to order us a house or health care? or education, or any of the other myriad of services that they, they spend things on. And of course, I'm, I'm right behind you with the, um, with the college thing. I mean, I, I went through college, and then I found myself building houses and doing things like that. Right. Um, and I can tell you, doing electrical and plumbing is, is far more fun than one might think. I was, um, I was managing a restaurant, and I, the restaurant was in such a poor state of repair, and it was losing so much money. I started bringing my tools and I blocked off five hours a week where nobody could bother me and I would just fix things because where I was, the electricians, and it's more now, charged $125 an hour and the plumbers charged $600 to replace a toilet, which takes about uh, 25 minutes. Right. So I actually saved the restaurant more money in those five hours. Right. Then they paid me in salary for my 40 to 50 hours. And that's when I realized that the free market is trying to tell me something. Yeah, it's interesting here. And that's what I've told my sons. And I'll always tell them. And other people can listen and say, well, how do you be successful? And I'm talking and just now here I'm just talking about fiscal success of that more is more to life than money. People will say, oh, this is ridiculous. Yeah, that's the other caricature. You just care about money. And you're only talking. Look at all the money things you're talking about. What about holiness? And well, well, here's the thing. Like, I think that people have a, a duty to be generous and to give money in effective ways to help other people. And I try to find the most effective charities I can to give money to. I like the Against Malaria Foundation, for example. It's very cheap, and I can get malaria nets to people that will save their lives. But to do that, it's great when you have excess income, when, you, when you're not worried that every single penny you get has to go to either keeping the lights on or food in the fridge. When you get past that point and you have money that, oh, I can choose to spend it on other wants or to help other people's needs. Now you have the freedom to practice that generosity to give to other people because you know, you've loved yourself and now you can love your neighbor. Uh, yeah. But well, when it comes to, Oh, <laughs> I was up all night with the kids. Now I've lost my, my train of, <laughs> my train of thought originally with that. <laughs> so we're, we're coming up at about an hour. I don't know how much yeah. uh, time. Well, you actually, have. I probably have to go here soon anyways, but. Um... Okay, cool. Well, let's, um, I'll tell you what, we can wrap it up either with. A, oh, sorry. Um... My kids. Oh, go ahead. My kids. Now I remember it. Uh, I was going to tell them uh, to be fiscally successful. 
you should uh, learn a skill that very few people have, but many people are in need of. And that's that's the key, that you can be a very successful person if you have mastered a skill that many people want, but few people have. Many people want a plumber. Maybe not right now, but when you've got a problem, you really want a plumber. But proportionally speaking, there's a, only a very tiny percentage of plumbers out there. Like when all our pipes froze in Texas, people were backlogged for months because there's not enough plumbers to meet the demand, even when it's not an emergency. You know, there's, and they're all 65 years old at this point. That's right. Yeah. In a couple of years. Yep. So there you go. Learn. But the problem is, if you learn a skill that that, you know, many, many people have, you're just not going to be compensated much. So, yeah, what people will say, like, when the plumber comes, all right, that'll be five hundred dollars. It's like, yeah, but you only worked for 30 minutes. You're not paying that plumber for the half hour he worked. You're paying him for the 20 years of experience that he has, that he can do it in a half hour and you can't do it at all. Or if you did do it, it would take you all day and you'd probably flood your house. You know, and so finally, that, and yeah. we just reject the labor theory of value right. outright. You know, So who, who cares? The fact is that you yeah. were willing to, to pay that. And if it truly is such a high amount, well, that's enticing more people to enter and be able to right. serve people in the way that they're um, demanded. Yeah. That's the other thing, too, is people will say, like, how could a CEO be worth? Uh, let's say I let, you know, it, it is a bit harder in some of the larger cases, but the, but the principle, it really still does apply. Uh, well, let's take let's take a mid-level CEO, someone who makes 10 million dollars a year. You know, that is a lot of money. That is probably 100 times more or 500 times more than what some of the lowest people in the company make on the when it comes to the salary rung. You know, it's like, how, why would what does he do that's worth $10 million a year pushing pencils sitting in an executive office? Well, it's about particular skills. There's only a very, very small number of people who know how to run a company that size well without plunging it into the ground. And you usually have to learn that by having he headed a smaller company for a significant while. And then you, 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 you grow it or you sell it or you acquire other companies. But people don't say that about like, basketball players making 10 million dollars a year or actors like there are many actors like why you know well i'm sure i mean you know you think like will smith robert downey jr they can command 10 million dollars a film or something like that like well why does that person why is their acting worth 10 million dollars well because there's very few people that if you put them in front of the camera they're going to do a great job like that there's very and, and very few people who can do that and so they can command those kind of wages because of the limit the limited elements of their skill set and i'll add something to that and that, that's what, what i call the lottery effect and uh, that's basically like if we took a whole bunch of people let's say they wanted to be basketball stars well if there's only a one in one thousand chance that they will make it but they all truly do have a shot at it and we pay the um and we pay the person who actually uh, gets it a million dollars then what's the value of each one of these lottery tickets? Well, it's only $1,000. These people are working for next to nothing. So if that's the case, in a way, that's quite unfair to the people who had a shot, be they trying to be CEOs or trying to be basketball stars. So when right. we tax somebody at this crazy high income and we forget about all the people who legitimately had a shot, who held that lottery ticket, then by getting by taxing the lottery proceeds, we're devaluing the ticket and the ticket is the compensation for right, all right. the laborers who sought to occupy that spot. Right. Uh, I mean, as 
as as Thomists as we are, we think that potential is a real real feature of the universe, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the potential to have done that is a real thing. Yeah. You were actually paid now, now, in the possibility yeah, one, of reaching that. I, I, I want to head off one objection. People say, well, a lot of these people, they just got money from their parents. And so it's it's aristocracy and it's uh, things like that. But actually, when you when you look at the data, many of the people who are uh, millionaires, uh, they did not come from backgrounds where their parents were also millionaires. Uh, so and also, though, even in Rerum Navarum, Pope Leo Thirteenth praises what the poor can do is that they can save and spend a life of thrift and bequeath what they have earned to their children. So their children don't have to start at the same level that they did. And that's something the church has, has always said. And Pope Leo XIII really criticized socialists as wanting to have a community of goods taking uh, you know, the joint sources of income to create social wealth, but taking it from things like inheritance, which he specifically mentions. So you should be able to set up your children so that they don't have to necessarily go through the entire steps you did. They're in a better place so that they can more quickly get to economic self-sufficiency and be those people who practice radical generosity, uh, those people who can invest in their communities. Maybe you use the excess money, not necessarily just to give to a charity, which is great. Maybe you start a business, then that employs people, then that creates wealth and makes people better off. So in Proverbs says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Yeah. So so for Catholics who think that inheritance is bad, well, I, I got I got news for you. Well, let's let's wrap up if you want to give sure. some, yeah, yeah. A, an elevator spit uh, pitch for um for why free markets are good and in line with uh, with what Catholics want. And assuming the elevator ride is say from ground floor to the top of the Empire State Le- uh, State <laughs> Building um so that you can survey all of what capitalism has built. Yeah. And what I would say is that capitalism or free markets, they are not perfect, but the church has taught that in spite of their imperfections, they are a vehicle that can be used for good. Free markets are not perfect because free markets are basically the decisions of free individuals uh, to place themselves in the marketplace. And free individuals, just like God made us free to choose good or evil in the marketplace, we might do something similar. But that voluntary association over time allows bad actors or bad transactions to be weeded out. You practice that all the time when you go online and look at Google reviews or Amazon reviews. And the more honest reviews you can find of something, you can freely choose to associate with, with what is good and reliable and move away from that which is unreliable or exploitative. And we have the empirical evidence over the last 200 years that things like global poverty, living on less than $2 a day has dropped from a time in the 1820s when 94% of the world lived at that level of subsistence to less than 10% today through the growth of markets and freedom of association in that regard. And so what the church has said consistently in its encyclicals and teaching about the markets is that they're great opportunities, both for evil and for good. And so we should promote things like uh, uh, labor unions that operate fairly uh, without... uh, things like unfair government backing and things like that. But we should allow the rights of workers to choose where they want to work, the rights of business people to open or close businesses as they see fit. And that in doing that, we create ideal circumstances for people to achieve 
uh, human flourishing at the very basic level of human dignity or human morality. And it provides a good foundation for us then to take our supernatural charity to do even more with that to help people. Ding, the door opens and everybody's staring at you in the elevator. Um, yeah, I, I'll just add a few things to that. Um, sure, sure. I'd say that the, the market actually teaches certain virtues, the obvious ones like delayed gratification and, you know, prudence, things like that. Sure. But an underrated one is it actually teaches empathy because you have to imagine what other people need and want. And then come up with a way to provide that. So that's a, a naturally empathetic uh, thing that we we have to do to be successful in the market. And then I may have stolen the second one from you or who knows who. I don't know where I steal my ideas from somewhere. Um, but one is that the free market system is a make before you take model, whereas socialism is a take before you make model, whereby you are granted something just by government fiat prior to ever having to serve your neighbor. Whereas in a free market system, you can't demand somebody serves you until you have served somebody else and to their satisfaction. So that is a way to teach people um, the golden rule. Um, and as you mentioned, the, this critique of, of everybody who supports free markets are, are just terrible, greedy capitalist pigs, I, I think is wrong and for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of which is it conflates self-interest with um, selfishness and self-interest caring about oneself is right and just. We too, ourselves are made in the image of God. And um, yeah, in order to to love others, we we have to have a properly ordered self-love. Um, there you go. I just went I up like a few floors. I, I think that's great. I, so yeah, this is, and this is fun. It's fun to um, chat about that. And it's hard because it's, it's so funny. People will say to me, you should just stay out of politics. And I do, I, I mean, I don't talk about politics on my social media or things like that, but I do care a lot about but i also want to help the poor i want to help people i want to make society better for people and i have there's certain political program and there's this idea sometimes in the church like only certain more liberal programs count as really helping the poor and now i don't now for me i'm not a straight ideologue like i'm not going to just vote party line on things or uh you know i there's there are like i believe in certain economic policies or social policies not everyone who identifies as libertarian or conservative would support but i just think the point is be a free thinker. And look, this is an empirical question. Find out which policies don't are not intrinsically evil. And then what are their consequences over time and use that to make an informed decision? Well, we have a traditional way to end here. And it goes something like this. If you enjoyed this episode and if you have and if you like sharing, share this with your friends. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. And I'll see you next time.